I just couldn't pass it up. <laughs> Fly the friendly skies of United. Not so much this week, obviously. Um, as I was, I was, I was watching this video that went viral with this guy being assisted off of the airplane. Uh, believe it or not, it actually made me think about Easter because everything makes me think about Easter during Holy Week. But here's what it made me wonder: I wonder if there are going to be any folks here today who feel a little bit like that guy, that they were kind of dragged here against their wishes. And uh, if there are any here who are like that, for whom this is kind of an uncomfortable deal, may I, just, may I just say to you, welcome and relax. We're glad you are here. We're not going to make you feel stupid or embarrassed. We are delighted to have you come and join us in this holiest of celebrations. And here's what we are praying for and hope. We are praying and hoping that this might be the day when you hear the story, the greatest story ever told, the story of the resurrection of Jesus in a way that captures your heart and actually transforms your life, that this, uh, this, this, light, this story becomes living for you. So that's what we are hoping for today, and whether you are here with great excitement or with a little uh, regret, we welcome you. Uh, this morning we are going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. There are four books in the New Testament, four little books that are called the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you all know them. Um, those are the, the books that are set aside to tell us the life and ministry of Jesus. The, uh, a, a remarkably large portion of each of the four Gospels is set aside uh, to talk about the last days of Jesus. Because the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. If what we are celebrating today is not true, if Jesus isn't truly raised bodily from the dead, then we ought to just close this down and become a self-help group, uh, like so many other uh, organizations in the world. But in fact, we Christians around the world and down through the ages believe that on this day, Jesus Christ was raised bodily from death into life. And I want to tell you uh, one of those accounts that comes to us from the gospel writer named Luke. Let me set the story in context for you. Jesus was crucified. He was nailed to a cross at 9 a.m. on a Friday morning. And he hung there in that agonizing state for about six hours. Can you imagine that? Six hours. It was finally at about three o'clock in the afternoon that we read that Jesus uh, cried out a loud cry. He breathed his last and he gave up his spirit. Now, at that point, there were not very many friends that were willing to uh, associate themselves with Jesus. They'd all kind of run away and hidden. But the very few who were willing to be identified with Christ, they took his body down from the cross. They hastily prepared it and wrapped it in linen cloths because it was the Sabbath. The Sabbath was going to start in just a couple of hours, and as Jews, they couldn't be working, and they couldn't be dealing with this after the Sabbath had began. So they kind of hastily took care of things, and then they took him to a nearby tomb and laid his body there. Then comes Sunday morning. At the crack of dawn, a group of faithful disciples, all of them women, return yet again to the tomb to finish the work that they had so hastily started on that Friday afternoon. And that's where I want us to pick up the story, because when they arrived, it wasn't at all what they expected to find. 
Listen to this reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. On the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking with them the spices that they had prepared. And they found that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed at this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered up into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women who were with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, would you take these words that are on a, on a page in a book and make them come to life as you raised up the Lord Jesus that day 2,000 years ago. Change us because we hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to take a, a look at the screens. I wonder how many know what you're looking at. That's the tomb of Jesus. That's the historical, traditional tomb of Jesus. Actually, the little building that you're looking at in the middle is called an edicule. Edicule. It's a shrine that was built around the tomb of Jesus, which sits inside of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. It's the holiest site in Christendom. What's interesting is that this uh, was at one time a hillside. It It was a rocky hillside, but over the centuries... The uh, Christians chipped away at the dirt and at the stones around the tomb of Jesus that was in that hillside until the point that they had the tomb, the shrine, and the church in which it sat. This year is an important year for this, uh, for this piece of history because on March 22nd they completed a nine-month restoration of the tomb of Jesus uh, that had been neglected for 200 years. And I've seen it many times, and you can see the the iron bars that were on the outside holding the whole thing together, so it needed work. One of the the high points of this must have been that day when the workmen lifted off the marble uh, slab that sits on the top of the original limestone bed on which Jesus' body was laid. For a few moments, those workmen and about 30 Greek priests who talked themselves into the tomb they laid eye on something that no human being had seen for 500 years and that no other human being is likely to see for many centuries from now. The very stone upon which the body of Jesus was laid. 
But this morning, Luke takes us back 2,000 years, past the time when there was a, a shrine, a, an edicule, a church, and to a time that it was just a hillside. There was a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He was a renowned religious leader in the community, a member of the Sanhedrin. And Joseph had ordered workmen to go to this very hillside and to carve out a stone, uh, a tomb out of the stone for his own use, for his family's use. Joseph had become a secret follower of Jesus. And this was a kind of a risky thing given his line of work as a religious leader in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Sanhedrin. But the more he listened to Jesus, the more compelled he felt to follow him. So he became a secret follower of Jesus. And then it wasn't so secret anymore because very courageously he went to Pilate, who was the Roman leader of the time, and he asked permission to have Jesus' body taken down and placed inside of his own family tomb. It was a very short-term loan Because on that Sunday morning, when the women arrived, and may I just point out one more time, that it was only the women, disciples of Jesus, who were brave enough to return to the tomb of Jesus. History will forever mark the courage of these first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. When those women returned to this tomb to finish the work that they had begun on that Friday afternoon, they didn't find at all what they expected to find. They found instead that the, the tomb was empty and that the, uh, there were some linen cloths laid to the side and there were these two men dressed in bling or dazzling apparel as Luke puts it. Matthew tells us that these two men were actually angels and those angels asked these women a very interesting question. Remember what it is? Why do you seek the living among the dead. Let's read that together. Why do you seek the living among the dead? How many times have I preached this story? You know, this is my 30th Easter here, so I've talked this story a lot, and I've said these words a lot, but I had never, I thought this is going to be the season when I ponder just this question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Here's one answer that the women might have offered. We don't seek the living among the dead. We seek the dead among the dead. We saw Jesus die with our own eyes. We watched as he was brutally flogged. We watched as they placed the instrument of his own death, his cross, on his shoulders. And and as he carried it painfully up to the top of a hill called Skull. We watched as they laid that wood down on the ground and then nailed his wrists and spiked his heel bones into that cross. And then lifted the cross to the sky and dropped it violently into the hole that had been prepared. We watched as he hung for Six agonizing hours, finally listening as he cried out with one final cry, it is finished, and breathed his last and gave up his spirit. We watched as the centurion, a man who was very experienced in death, a man who had executed many hundreds of people in this fashion and who knows the difference between death and life. We watched as that centurion took his spear and drove it up into the side of Christ and into his heart just for good measure. And when his body was taken down, it was with our hands that we bathed him, pierced, broken, brutalized. We anointed him with oil. We wrapped him in cloths. We placed him in Joseph's tomb. So don't talk to us about the living among the dead. We are not here to seek the living. We are here to seek the dead so that we might give him the proper burial. I'll bet every one of you remembers the first time you ever saw a dead person. Slip your hand up, do you? Remember the first time you ever saw someone dead? 
Did it freak you out? It did me. I was like five years old. My great-grandpa, Grandpa Sneath, and big grandpa, we called him, he had died, and we went down to California for his funeral. And, uh, and at the end of the service, they really astounded me by opening up the coffin and inviting people to walk by and pay their last respects. There was no way I was going to do that. It completely freaked me out. So I stood at the back while everyone was walking up, and I, I remember seeing his nose up above the edge of the... He had kind of a big nose, and, and I, I don't know how you remember stuff like this, but it was completely freaky to me. And I'll bet it, for many of you it was similar. Of course, over the years in my line of work... I've encountered a lot of death. I have been to car wrecks. I have been to the site of drownings. I have been to the homes of crib deaths. I have attended to many suicides. I have stood in the emergency room with a family that was receiving unexpected and awful news. And I have stood vigil with a man in his own bedroom as he breathed his last and then helped him to close his now lifeless eyes. So I've seen a lot of death, and there is a finality. It is the great finality, isn't it? So if I were with those women when, at Jesus' tomb, when those two strange and shiny men asked that question of me, I would not, have been expect, I would not have been surprised to hear them say, we don't seek the living. We are seeking the dead, for Jesus is dead, and we know that to be so. That might have been one response. Here's another response, though, if they hadn't been so grief-stricken. Here's another reasonable response that any thinking apostle of Jesus might have responded with. They might have said, we seek the living among the dead because that is what Jesus taught us to do. We seek the living among the dead because that is what Jesus taught us to do. Do you remember this last January, there was a terrible avalanche that, that, that crashed into a ski resort in, uh, in Italy. Remember that? And we saw images of, 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 of people who were, they were searching like mad for survivors. They would listen for the faint cries of those who were trapped inside, and, and then they would dig like mad. They were seeking the living among the dead, weren't they? And this is... It may not, you may not be aware of it, but this is exactly why Jesus came to earth in the first place. Jesus came on a rescue mission. You may not know that. Jesus didn't come to prove how good or how smart or even how powerful he was. Jesus didn't come to teach great parables and have those parables recited for centuries to come, although that has certainly been the case. We are told in the Bible that Jesus came for the purpose of saving us from the terminal disease that the Bible calls sin. And to deliver us from a a kingdom of evil. For God so loved. You know this passage. It's probably the most famous passage uh, in the New Testament. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believed in him would not perish. That's language of death. Jesus came to keep us from dying. And the Apostle Paul puts it this way. He said, even when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. So we were dead in our sins. Christ made us come to life. But honestly, beloved, this is not very culturally correct for us to say so. Especially among Americans. Every single human being, though, and I'm just going to say it, suffers from a mortal spiritual defect called sin. Sin tends to make us think of ourselves before others, and it tends to make us think in ways that harm relationships, harm relationship with others that are destructive to ourselves, and worst of all, that separate us from our relationship with our Heavenly Father. 
And no matter how hard we try, no matter how hard we pull up the bootstraps, there is no cure available. Nothing that we can do that will save us, that will cure us from this sin, this disease with which we are all afflicted. There is a sense in which every one of us in our own state is spiritually dead and we need saving. And the story of Jesus is the story of our rescuer in search of the living among the dead. And we saw examples of that throughout his ministry. When Jesus went to a man named Legion, who lived literally among the tombs, this was a poor, afflicted man who had many demons in him. When Jesus encountered him, cast those evil spirits out of the man and set him free and returned him to his right state. That was Jesus seeking the living among the dead. When Jesus walked around the pool called Bethesda near the sheep gate of the old city of Jerusalem, the, 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 the pavement was covered with people who were sick and dying. And he called out to one man, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? The man replied, and Jesus gave him his life. Literally, Jesus was seeking the living among the dead. And when Jesus would dare to touch the ulcerous skin of a leper who was a a social outcast, who was even socially dead to his own family, but Jesus would touch him and give him new skin and restore him to his society, Jesus once again was seeking the living among the dead. Of course, it's impossible. Who can do that? Who can make dead things come to life? And when the women heard this at the tomb, they must have thought that. This is crazy talk. But calling death out of life is exactly what Jesus does. And it is what, by the way, the disciples of Jesus do as well because the Holy Spirit of Christ lives within us. And when we speak and work in His authority and His power, we too can call the living out of death. Many of you know that my daughter Rachel is in her last semester, believe it or not, at seminary near Boston. Earlier, a few weeks ago, she had the opportunity to go and visit a young woman in her 30s in Providence, Rhode Island, a very seedy and dangerous section of Providence uh, that is rife with prostitution and drugs and violence. This woman's name is, uh, I'll call her Sarah. She did not have a very promising start to her life. At the age of 14, Sarah had her first baby. At the age of 15, she had her second baby. At the age of 16, she had her third baby, and then her fourth, and then her fifth. By the time she was 20 years old, Sarah, single mom, five babies in a very dicey part of town. Like I said, it wasn't a very promising start, was it? In fact, one might say that it was, it was deadly, the start to her life. And then the most remarkable thing happened. Sarah met Jesus. Someone introduced her to the living Christ. Not the dead storybook Jesus, the living Jesus. And Sarah took him seriously. When the Bible said that Jesus had come to forgive you of your sins, Sarah knew all of her sins. She had plenty of them. She wanted them forgiven, and so she received that forgiveness. And when the Bible said that Jesus had been raised up from the dead, she believed that because she wanted to live in new life, a a new future, a new hope that she had never known before. So she believed that too. She took Jesus at his word. And then she began to tell her friends about the difference that Jesus had made in her life. Pretty soon those friends were gathering around her in her house. And pretty soon they formed a church. 
An unlikely church with an unlikely pastor. This single mom of five kids with no training, no background, no experience, unqualified as far as the world might say, but not as far as God would say. And she was qualified certainly in this sense, that she had experienced the risen Christ. And when she talked about Jesus, she knew very well from her own experience how he seeks the living among the dead. Well, soon Sarah had three more babies. But not the way that you think. You see, these three were the babies of drug lords. One night when Sarah was out, she saw one of the most infamous drug lords in the area seated in his car supervising the pushers that were out on the streets. She did a very courageous, some would say foolhardy thing. She walked up to the passenger side of the drug lord's car, opened the door, got in, sat down next to him, and she said, you cannot raise your son this way. She chewed out the drug lord. And remarkably, he agreed. And so he began to leave his three-year-old son, Sean, with Sarah on the weekends. That's his busiest time. Pretty soon, another drug lord heard, and he asked Sarah if she would watch his baby on the weekends too. And then a third. Sarah became the mother to these three children. They they called her mom, and Sarah began to speak into these kids' life. She raised them up to help them believe that there's something more than the culture of death that they had been raised in. But it was uphill sledding, as you might imagine, because already, even in those early years of life, the, that, that, that culture of death had made its imprint on them. While Rachel was at Sarah's house, <laughs> they had a fire in the bedroom, a mattress uh, uh, was set on fire by one of the kids, as a matter of fact. And so they, they got all the kids out of the house, and then Rachel and her seminary friend, they ran back inside, and they put the fire out, and when she came out, the kids were saying, Rachel, you're a gangsta! You're a gangsta! Which I guess is a good thing. That was a, a compliment. But the, the 911 call had already gone out. And so the car, the police car comes roar, rolling up, and the, the lights are flashing, and the, the siren is wailing. And little three-year-old Sean, the, the son of the drug lord who was there, he cried out, It's the police! Everybody run! Sean never knew the police to be the people that would come and help. Sean knew the police to be the people that would come and, and give trouble to his father. And when Sarah would call out to Sean, Sean, what did Jesus do for you? Sean will reply at the top of his voice, Jesus died for me. Bang, 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 bang. And again, we don't know how to respond, do we? At first we chuckle at it, and then it strikes us with horror that this little three-year-old knows more, way more about dying than any child should. And perhaps understands the sacrificial love of Jesus for him better than most adults ever will. Jesus died for me. Bang, 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 bang. You know, when they restored the tomb of Jesus this year, they made one change to the fabric of the edicule to the shrine. They cut a, a small hole in the wall of the inner shrine So that if you want to, you can ask a priest and he will swing it open and you can look at the very wall that experienced the greatest miracle 
in human history, the very stones, the literal stones. We don't know how it happened. It's not described for us in any way uh, in the scriptures. But sometime in the early morning hours of that Sunday, the Spirit of God came upon the dead body of Jesus. And perhaps the walls of that tomb began to reflect with the warmth and the light as the Holy Spirit did the work of restoration that only God can do. And in an instant, dead lungs breathed. And a dead heart began to beat. And dead eyes fluttered and opened. And the indomitable Lord of life, Jesus Christ, was raised from death to life. The living among the dead. We may not face the kind of deadly circumstances that Sean and Sarah and the rest of their family do. That there is not a person here who doesn't understand how deadly life can be. The death of a relationship, right? For some of you, it's the death of a marriage. For some of you, it's the death of your career or your dream. Just last Friday, I heard that from a friend of mine. And for some of you, more literally and right now, the death of a person that you love, that was precious to you, and has left you bereft. And when we face these moments of death, when we walk into these tombs, you can either give up, you can kind of surrender to the inevitable, or more destructively, you can continue to seek life in all of the dead ends that have been a source of such damage and destruction to you so far. Or... You can lift up your eyes and look for the one who seeks the living among the dead. You can turn your heart over to the Christ, the only one who has experienced death and had victory over it. The only one who can seek the living among the dead and call us from death to life. You can turn your life, your eyes, your heart, your hopes to the risen Jesus. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Jesus, thank you that you left your Father's side in glory. Thank you that you loved us so much that you were willing to sacrifice what it meant to be in an eternal and perfect relationship with your spiritual Father to come to this place, this this sphere in the middle of the universe to love, to live to die and to rise again, seeking the living from among the dead. I pray, Lord, first of all, prayers of gratitude for the, those who are here and have received that gift and know what it means to live in you. Thank you. And Lord, I pray for those who do not yet know that, who resist it, who doubt it, or have just never taken it seriously, who are still living in death. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would do the same restorative work in every heart here that you did in, your, in that tomb 2,000 years ago, calling death to life. Only you can do this, Jesus. In Christ alone, we have this hope. And for that, we will forever give you praise and glory. Easter, we extend an invitation to those who are visiting us who aren't ordinarily here to come back the next week. We don't do it to fill up our pews. We don't do it because we think there's something magical about coming to church. 
We do it because we believe in the resurrected Christ and that the best way to get to know him, to live in that life, is to be together, to learn about him, to worship him together. And so if there's a longing that this stirs in your heart, I invite you to come back. Next week, we're going to celebrate one of the most precious things to us in the church, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, but if you'd like to come, you're welcome. (laughs) And two weeks from now, we're going to begin a series where we're going to talk about our future as a congregation. The next five to ten years, we're going to talk about what it means for this church that has so much to begin to live beyond these walls as we never have before. That might be something you'd be worth hearing about. But for now, we're glad you're here. We're glad you could come and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And so let's join together in that ancient chorus as we learned it at the beginning of the service. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Raise your hands and receive the blessing of the Lord Jesus. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his perfect peace, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all of God's resurrection people said, Amen. Amen.